You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Previously on Kevin and Query. I would consider Tiger Woods my idol. I've never met Tiger. I've thought about meeting him. Did you like that? Yes. Yeah, I did too. That was awesome. And I've thought to myself, as soon as I say hello, I'll probably say, I'm sorry my hands are so sweaty and I'm so nervous and I'm stuttering and I can't believe that I'm meeting you right now. Take it easy, champ. Why don't you stop talking for a while? John Tiger! I want to kiss you. that mark what do you mean Gosh. you just expressed some fandom i was in the middle of the jelani woods interview and we went on this like 30 second tangent about how you're like <laughs> fanboying over tiger woods yeah, it felt like it was uh, maybe jelani a- did not not know how to respond to that he's like oh, I, okay. I thought he responded very well jelani actually agreed with kevin because jelani apparently had the same fascination from matt ryan and was like oh. yeah i get it it is kind of a wild story have Can i you told imagine you- what's that I mean, you know, you're growing up in the backyard and you're literally mimicking Matt Ryan and then here you are, not as a quarterback, but now you're catching a game-winning touchdown pass for Matt Ryan? It would be like, yeah, I guess it would be like me playing in the same backcourt with Jay Edwards or Reggie Miller as a pro. That would have been unique. I've told you the one athlete, Kevin, one, and I've been very fortunate in my career. I'm just old. I've been around a long time to have crossed paths with, interviewed, or covered games of a lot of great athletes because I've covered a lot of, you know, different sports, but in different capacities. The one athlete that left me completely starstruck, the only, the only one where I was like, oh oh my gosh. Joey Chestnut. I'm seeing him in the flesh. How'd you know? No. Uh, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson is the one Makes that was sense. my Tiger Woods because that was in my absolute zenith of sports fandom, impressionable age, and he was a mythical figure. And then I saw him in person and was like, holy cow. Um, by the way, good morning to you. It is a Wednesday. It is Kevin and Quarry. That's Kevin Bowen. I'm Jake Quarry. Mark Dykton here as well. Good-looking day. Start to the day. And yesterday, practice number one now in the books for the Pacers. This is not to say, Kevin, that I think – that Miles Turner is going to be a long-term player with the Indiana Pacers. However, I do believe, and and I, I may be proven completely wrong here, but my educated opinion on it, not to say that Bob Kravitz is uneducated. I love Bob Kravitz, and I think he's one of the most dialed-in people in this town. Um, educated guess is a better way of saying it my educated guess is that miles turner is on the roster up to the trade deadline and then all bets are off but i think he will start this season on the roster now and i think that the pacers are going in thinking that but i also think that if if someone were to come along and make a can't miss offer for miles turner the pacers would indeed make that move but if that were going to happen it would have happened by now now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like in the last, I don't know, a couple of weeks that this conversation has been brought up, you have felt like a Turner-Pacers relationship could continue after this season. I would agree with that Do as well. Do you feel that? Yes. This is Bob Kravitz yesterday. This much we know to be true. Turner's days in Indiana are numbered. 
which is both mildly sad and perfectly understandable. He needs once out, and Indiana's moving in a different direction. Everybody's on the same page. He'll be a free agent at season's end, and he's not staying in Indiana, his home for the past seven years. There's no black hat or white hat here, not like there was with Paul George or Victor Oladipo. Turner gave the Pacers seven good years, and at this point, headed into his eighth season, both sides have made it clear the relationship is not going to last. I think that Miles Turner will be on the roster when they start the season. I could be totally wrong in that. I, I I guess to be fair, Bob is not saying he'll be gone at the start of the season, but he has made it very clear that Miles Turner and the Pacers will not be together this time next year. Well, that's I, I can't disagree with that. If that is true, Jake, they're not going to be here next year. How do you handle Turner this season? Uh, Turner's been in this situation. He knows what's up. How do the Pacers handle it? I, I'm not talking about how does Turner – like, I mean, if you're the Pacers and this guy's not going to be here next year, you play him and – You showcase him, You're right? risking injury. He's injured himself with foot injuries each of the last two seasons. You play him. You're taking minutes away from an Isaiah Jackson – you know, Isaiah's probably the one young guy that I think a lot of people are intrigued by that fits a little bit more of that position. I think people are pretty much done on Goga. Um, Daniel Tice, a little bit more in the veteran route. Um, but I think those would be the questions you have to ask yourself if you're going to play. I expect them to play him and treat him like a normal starter. But how do you not have those questions, though? I think the thing about Turner that puts you kind of in a in a rock and a hard place. You have young players, Kevin. The Pacers are, there is no doubt, and I know they're not going to use this terminology, but the Pacers, you know, the, the, to be honest with you, I'm not going to say the hardest, the most important. The most important ingredient for the Pacers to understand or buy into a refoundation, we'll say it that way. The most important person to get on board with that was Rick Carlisle. Because the roster, I mean, they they can't control what you're going to do. The front office decides what you're going to do. But you have a coach making, what, $7.5, $8 million a year who's won an NBA title that came here, and you have to, to make sure that he understands, listen, this is not a situation where we're bringing you in to get us over the top. You, you're you're just over 60 years old. Are you cool with being on the ground floor on this? And Carlisle was and is. And so, and I think the young players understand that. Turner is an interesting one because he's not a young player. Now, he is young. He's, what, 26. But in NBA years, he's not young. And so, how do you showcase what he can do if you are also trying to get Isaiah Jackson minutes, to get younger players minutes and to also put yourself in position for one more year of the lottery, which is exactly what they're going to do. It's exactly what they're going to do. Like, how much can Turner really improve his trade stock in the first three months of the season? I would tend to agree with that, and that's why I think the Pacers know, look, he's here, we got to make the most of it. I do think that there are some things he can bring. He's a mature guy, and I think a level – like, this is not – I just think that's an awkward balance. It, of, it is. You want – you know – you. You use the word showcase Turner. And obviously Turner helps you right now in trying to win games. But if you take Bob Kravitz's words 
and realize that both parties seem to fully acknowledge that a relationship is not going to last past this season. That means Turner has to be traded by February. But if I'm thinking about the long term and Isaiah Jackson is a guy long term, I want to play Isaiah Jackson a good amount. I don't want Miles Turner to get hurt. I want to make sure that you get, you know, proper value and trade for him. The last thing you want for the Pacers is Miles Miles Turner to suffer another injury like he has each of the last two seasons. And all of a sudden you get the trade deadline and he's lost significant trade value or you get the free agency next year for some reason and he's still here and he doesn't want to re-sign and now Miles Turner's walked. And that is a guy that you drafted, invested in for a half dozen years and got zero on return for him. Those are my concerns with the Turner situation. All fair, for sure. Did you see his tweet yesterday? I did not. I was curious if this was in reference to Bob's article. Miles Turner fires up this on the Twittersphere. When the hate don't work, they start telling lies. Season. A couple pictures from Media Day around that. I think an eight ball is what he had. Uh in the uh, tweet, eight ball emoji, uh, would that be his eighth? Is it his eighth year? That may be right. I right, Listen, those were in quotes, by the way. When the hate don't work, they start telling lies. I like Miles Turner, but Miles Turner is a big fan of the cryptic tweets, is he not? He definitely is. <laughs> Mark, Mark quietly agrees. Yep. He doesn't tweet often, but cryptic tweets and Miles Turner, they go hand in hand. Uh, Pacers, Steve, your thoughts on Miles Turner? I was so happy driving to work to hear you bring up rumors of him leaving. Uh, I don't understand where where Turner fits in anywhere. He's not a Joel Embiid. The league is is moving to a heavy outside three point shooter type game. I think the value of a guy in the paint that's a blocker, and that's his one trick pony is being a, a, you know, high on blocks. I, I think that those kind of guys are diminished. If, if you do not have Joel Embiid. He can stretch the floor, then, though, Steve. Well, he, his, his three-point shooting is no better than a 25 other tall forwards in the league. And this should be somebody that uh, for his salary and his experience and his height he, and the position he plays should be a 20-10 and 10 player. He can't rebound. Taylor is a half a foot shorter than Turner and has more rebounds per minute when he's playing hey, than Turner. And Steve. Taylor gets down in the paint. You watch Taylor when he's in the paint, and he bullies people out. Away, yeah, Taylor can play. Tur- Turner cannot cannot rebound. He is gangly. He's goofy running down the floor. He's got a weird run. He's he's not made for a high octane, high high speed offense. Uh, he he barely barely does better than the twenty and ten. This is somebody he's like a twelve and six player getting twenty million dollars a year. And and if you keep him, you've got to sign him to an even even bigger contract. Contract, and I totally agree exactly, exactly what's going to happen. If you hang on to him in his theoretical showcase and prop up his trade value, he is going to get an injury and be off the trade market. Uh, he's, he's very injury prone, which is a whole other reason not to be a fan of him. I think you get rid of him now. If you're building, if you're in a youth movement and you're in a teardown and you want to rebuild this team, Turner has no business on the floor getting minutes. You want Jackson and Smith getting minutes and people like that. Turner absolutely makes no 
sense in this lineup being in the final year of his contract. His premium trade value is now. If not now, there may be a little bit of logic in letting teams go through the next three weeks. Here's of the thing, though, Steve. And stuff, the, and then Steve. He, I hope somebody big gets hurt on another team. No, Steve, team, they're all, all really be- good points, okay? All really good points. I appreciate it. But Thank you for the passion, the, the, Excellent points. The, the one issue there is this, and that is, I'm telling you, if there were, if Miles Turner had the kind of trade value that could get the Pacers back assets that they could use, he would be, he would have been dealt by now. Part of the reason he, a large percent, I, listen, I, I asked directly, is Miles Turner on the roster? Is, is that does that say a little bit about the fact that there was not a market for Miles Turner that that got you return on investment if you were to to send him out? And the response was indirect, but I've done this a long time. And the response was he's on our our roster, and we reserve the right to say that he won't be forever. But for now, he's on our roster. Yeah, I think back to the trade deadline last year, Jake, and Turner getting hurt. Was that all of a sudden? What led to DeMontis Sabonis trades being explored, therefore Sacramento Kings having some interest, therefore Tyrese Halliburton being here. It's just kind of wild to think back on that, how that Turner injury had a domino effect that could have led to Halliburton now being here. Right. Uh, you know, the the trade rumor that has been most often mentioned as of late with Turner is that Lakers trade for a 2027 first-round pick. Um doesn't sound like the Lakers want to add in the 2029 first-round pick. I want draft picks, but I also want assets that are going to help you out right now. Like, you have this young timetable, this young core. Could you move those draft picks, you know, and package them in other deals? Sure. But I want to make sure that I'm trying to help Tyrese Halliburton, Benedict Mather, and Isaiah Jackson, Chris Duarte, whoever else you want to throw into that young core, Jalen Smith. I want to help them out now. So that one... I don't like. Um, Yesterday, Rick Carlisle mentioned that the second unit of TJ McConnell, Benedict Matherin, Aaron Neesmith, Terry Taylor, Isaiah Jackson, he called them dominant on day one. So that second unit, I would assume, was playing against the starting group of Turner, Jalen Smith, Chris Duarte, Buddy Heald, and Tyrese Halliburton. I'm telling you, I like Terry Taylor. I, I don't know. I mean, he's a deep rotation guy, but I like what he brings to the table. I think they like what he brings to the table because he plays way bigger than he is. How did he not lead a mid-major team on some NCAA tournament run? That's a great question. Doesn't he just look like that guy? Totally. Joining us now on the Payless Liquors guest line, as he does seemingly each and every week. Last time it was to mention D.B. Cooper, which uh, took off like wildfire, and everybody now has been tweeting us D.B. Cooper stuff. Uh, Stephen Holder is with ESPN.com. He covers the NFL and notably the Indianapolis Colts. He is also a native of South Florida. So, Stephen, let's begin with this. I know that your family is in the Miami area. Fortunately, Miami uh, not necessarily right in the direct line for Hurricane Ian, which now apparently is a Category 4 and could uh, continue to increase by the time it makes landfall on the western side of Florida. But... Um, you know, you've been through this, I would assume, or your family has. What is the thought process for you as a Florida native when you see your home state, you know, in peril and preparing for something like this? Oh, yeah, I've been through it. I think 
it, it's very familiar, and you know it's going to come at some point. Um, you know, you have to prepare for just a, a wide range of outcomes. That's the that's the hard part, you know, because you know it's coming. But I remember Hurricane Andrew, nineteen ninety two. Um, I, I think I was maybe a sophomore in high school or something, and I, that storm initially was was heading about to the Dade County and Broward County line, right in that area. Well, I lived right there, <laughs> and so this thing, and that was a historic storm. This thing is bearing down on us, and then at the last minute, it bumps just a little bit to the south, and it, and it hits south of, of the city of Miami. Uh, the, the devastation was still this, you know, catastrophic, right? But it, it didn't hit the, the primary um, area of, of population. So you, know, you can imagine what that would have been. The point is you just don't know, and you have to, you have to basically prepare for, for that direct hit. You know? and, and so I did spend eight years in Tampa, and so the West Coast – this is a little different for them. The West Coast of Tampa, or that that that, that particular part of the West Coast, I should say, the Tampa Bay area in particular, hasn't had a direct hit in like I think something like sixty or seventy years, which is crazy. And I worry about the Bay. If you've ever been to Tampa or St. Petersburg, you know that the waterfront is everything, right? And there's so much, there's so much just sort of centered on the waterfront uh, in the Bay, and that water pushing in from the Gulf. And so anyway, I don't want to get into a meteoro- meteorological. Uh, report here but it, there's a lot to worry about and yeah I, I got my fingers crossed for a lot of people I, that you know I have relationships with so hoping for the best for them yeah we took a family vacation to Anna Maria Island which is out in yeah. the area um, last yeah. year and I'm just picturing Beautiful. that drive from the Tampa airport Stephen and oh my gosh you talk about exposed and the water yep. right there and like you said that area of Florida is not necessarily used to it like maybe some other parts are. So thinking about everybody down in your home state. Uh, no easy transition here to the Colts, but we'll do that. The Colts and the Titans on Sunday at Lucas Oil Stadium. I, I would say the biggest Colts-related topic of the week is centered around the pass protection issues. Steven, you know, I, I think there's a lot that you can put at for some of the issues, individual play, the mishandling of stunts, the communication problems. I probably go to that last part, and that's where I think Colts fans have a little bit of like glass half full optimism. To me, the biggest problem with protection right now revolves communication. And I would like to think that Matt Ryan's 15 years of NFL experience, Ryan Kelly's seven years of NFL experience, they could get that figured out. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that the the unblocked rushers is just completely mystifying to me, right? You know, how is this happening with a veteran center who's been to the Pro Bowl, um, a, a quarterback who's been the MVP of the NFL? I mean, of all the concerns we had about Matt Ryan, <laughs> diagnosing blitzes certainly wasn't one of them, right? And and I think the thing that, that makes this a little more, uh, I guess, hard to stomach is the fact that a lot of these things have not been you know, sort of brand new exotic blitzes there have been blitzes that they they knew were coming certainly they try to disguise them let's let's be clear it's not as if the defenses are just telling you what they're going to do but but they should be able to pick this stuff up so i really can't put my finger on why it's not happening but i agree i think there is a justification for a, a glass half full approach here because these guys i do trust them to figure it out 
And and we've also never seen this from the Colts. You know, they have done a pretty good job of this in the past. It's not something they've struggled with. I, I do think having new members on that offensive line is we knew that there could be a downgrade in their performance perhaps, but I don't think we appreciated the, the change in continuity and synergy among that unit. Ryan Kelly kept telling me in the the locker room last couple of weeks, he said, you know, we're we're not playing as one. We don't, all five guys are not playing as one yet. Why is that not happening yet? I don't know, but, but I do agree that, they can get there. And if they do, that changes the game. Steven, when you look at the Colts and where they are right now, which of these statements do you think, you know, at Thanksgiving time we're going to look back on and realize to be more true? A, Kansas City was not near as dominant as we thought, and therefore the Colts defeating them kind of water found its level there. Or B, Jacksonville's a heck of a lot better than we thought, and the Colts getting embarrassed down there was then not as embarrassing in the long run. Hmm. This is tricky. I I actually think that Kansas City had they eliminated the mistakes on Sunday. Kansas City could have put forty on the board. Now I could have said the same thing about the Colts in Week One. But Kansas City lost that game in much the same way as the Colts ended up with a tie in Houston, if that makes sense. You know, I, I thought they were much better than, than what they displayed. Uh, the Colts had like 500-plus like yards of offense in Houston, right? Uh, Kansas City had so many opportunities they just didn't capitalize on, and they just gave so many uh, or made so many mistakes that they, they enabled the Colts to win that game. So I, I go back and forth on Jacksonville. I really like what they're doing, and, and I, I, I will answer your question here at some point. I'm rambling. But I I think with Jacksonville, we still need to see a little more, you know, because there there certainly were, well, beating the Colts is, is not big news anymore for them, right? And then going to, to L.A. and beating the Chargers, that was incredibly impressive. However, I do think the Chargers were not themselves, right, for a number of reasons. Certainly their quarterback was. Right. So let's let's see Jacksonville keep it up. Let's see them keep it up. I I. I'm optimistic, though, that they're much better. So I, so I think – I still think that Kansas City is going to be – it's going to be pretty good. I still think it's going to be – they're going to be pretty good. But it is going to be harder. They are – they're having to win in a different way this year. So – but I lean toward the – I lean toward the, the, um, the you know, Kansas City uh, being the team we think they are, or at least largely the team that we think they are. Yeah, I think we probably expect Kansas City to still win the AFC West, but if for some reason they don't. That could be a rematch at Lucas Oil Stadium if the Colts mm. win the AFC South uh, to open up the wild card round of the playoffs. Stephen Holder from ESPN.com. He's with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Stephen, I know you and I and, and you know, some of our colleagues, we had a lot of Shaquille Leonard discussion, not only with Frank Reich, but just kind of amongst ourselves on Friday. Jake and I were talking yesterday about it. And I, I think from day one, it's been a very confusing injury situation. It's been complicated. I mean, Shaq said it in May, I think I'm done with surgeries, procedures, whatever you want to call it. A few weeks later, he's having back surgery. Um, I guess to summarize everything, do you feel like this is where you would put it right now? Shaquille Leonard is not comfortable playing at 80 or 90%. If you had to sum it all up, is that where we're at right now based off the four weeks of practice he's had in a row now and how he views himself on tape versus you know past years? 
Yeah, it, it sounds like he doesn't feel like himself, and and I think that is, I think that's basically the same thing you're saying. And so, the question then becomes, you know, how much, how much further does he need to go to get to where he's comfortable? And 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 I I do think the one thing that we we I think did learn is that a lot of this is being driven by by Shaq and how he feels. And and it's still a a collaborative decision to, to borrow the phrase from, from Frank Reich, but it does seem as though they're, they're listening uh, to Shaq in large part here. And, and they said, look, he knows his body. And I also think that this is a, this has been something he's been dealing with for so long, which goes to the point that you just made that I actually don't blame him if, if his approach is that, look, I, I don't feel like myself just yet, then it's hard to blame the guy for not going out there and saying I'm going to play anyway when he's been dealing with this issue for, according to him, like three-plus years, right? Or some some sort of form of, of lower body pain in some fashion, right? So I, I, I get it. And then, so the next couple of weeks are interesting for the Colts, too, because I think we can, I think we can say without even having seen what happens this week, we can say it's, it's probably going to be a close call again, right? And, and if he doesn't play on Sunday, then I wonder what's the point of, of trying to make a go four days later in Denver. So there's a, there's a two-week window here where he can really get two weeks of work under him, get some rest as well, and, and be ready to go after that little 10-day break after the Broncos. I don't know that that's how they're going to handle it, but I'm just saying if he doesn't play this week, that's probably where I would come down on it and, and just try to get through. But, boy, could they use him right now. There's no question. Uh, the, the defense is starting to come around, right? And, and I think you can imagine. Those turnover numbers are a little quiet for their standard. That is the thing. That's the thing. Uh, this team averaged almost two turnovers per game last year. And so to only have a couple now, you know, through three games, that's not them. That is not them, and, and that is not that was not their formula last year. Stephen, I'm not making light of this at all. I'm simply quoting from the past within the Colts and injury history and the owner. What percent of Shaquille Leonard not being out on the field at this point is between the years? Oh, some of it certainly is. What percent? Uh, hard to say. I, I, I think, I think it's it's a decent size percentage. And, and uh, so, so that folks listening don't get it confused. That's not me yeah. or you saying that it's that he is that it's an intellectual or a like mental health issue as much as just right. psychologically feeling comfortable and and not being hesitant, right, about your body. Yeah, yeah, and it stems from from something Jim Mercy has has said in the past, uh, specifically about Andrew Luck at one point when he was, was going through some things, uh, rehabbing that shoulder and, and getting confidence back in it. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think you, you just said this, but I'll reinforce it. There's nothing wrong with that because I think it's, it's absolutely true. One of the biggest things when you're coming off a major injury, you know, having surgery or whatever the, whatever the case might be, is regaining confidence in your body and in your ability to do what it is that you do. Uh, you know, what these guys do is, is hard. Okay. And, and when you have to do it after, after having, you know, sort of a, uh, a, a major injury, you know, you're asking a lot in terms of a, from a confidence standpoint, you're asking a lot of them, you know, to go out there and, and to overcome that. So there's, 
that's a process. That is a process. And and I think the thing you have to understand, particularly when you're dealing with with nerve issues and, and things of that nature, is the, the big thing that Shaq had to deal with here is regaining his strength in his lower body. I mean, if you talk to people who have who have had similar issues, they feel they just don't have any strength. You know, and, and that's one of the issues that he just had to overcome. Uh, that was a big part of the, the late summer uh, process for Shaquille. And so now it's a matter of also getting his legs back and, and being the player he can be. I, I'm not surprised in retrospect, now that we know more about it, I'm not surprised that it's taken this long. And then when you factor in, as you just pointed out, the, uh, the mental aspect of it, that it, it's understandable that this has been a long process. Stephen Older from ESPN.com. He's with us here on Kevin and Query. Uh, Stephen, through three weeks, has there been a better cult than Grover Stewart? That guy, let me tell you. I mean, you talk about somebody who who can maybe ask for a contract renegotiation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's him. Right. Kenny yeah, Moore I'll needs to take a something. look at him and see and see how he's playing. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you something. You know, we we came into this year thinking this was going to be the year the pass rush really took off, and and we did see. I thought a really impressive pass rush against Kansas City, but you know what's happened? the The rush defense, the run defense, I guess, uh, has been spectacular. I mean, I, there were some. I think if you look at it statistically, maybe it doesn't look amazing, but I think the eye test tells you, right? There have been a couple of long runs that have gotten out, maybe the first couple weeks, but they've shut it down, and and they have really been uh in the backfield just consistently and the guy who's there more than anybody is is grover stewart uh this is and and maybe this is one of those things where you know we talk about positional value right maybe the nose tackle isn't the most important position and we, we hear this a lot with quentin nelson and 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 maybe even jonathan taylor right the, today the, the running back is a little bit de-emphasized i mean Whatever, right? Whether you agree with those takes or not, that's not the point. The, the point is, I think if you look across the board, nose tackle is probably not the highest priority on people's list. However, when you talk about disruption on the early downs, what you do is you get exactly what the Colts need for this defense to work properly, which is third and long, second and long, third and long. And he's helping them create more of those. So in that respect, he has a lot of value, and I think it's a, it's a great development for the Colts. Grover Stewart played collegiately at Division II Albany State. I'd like to know between Mark Dykton, Kevin Bowen, Stephen Holder, which of you can tell me the mascot of Albany State University? Oh, uh, the kitchen sink oh. wings. Okay. Mark, your guess? <laughs> it's not Pirates, is it? I don't know. Hey. It's not Pirates. East Carolina, uh, right, on that? The Frogs. Yeah, Let's go Frogs. <laughs> The frogs. Yeah, sure. Why not? I remember when they drafted them. I was like, I have never heard of this school. It's in Albany, so I, Georgia. I know about it because my wife's family is from that area, but that's literally the only reason. And I think some of their family attended the school. Otherwise, I'd have no concept of that school. Golden Rams. Sure. The Golden sure. Rams. So my question is, Stephen Grover Stewart. Was it anticipated when he was drafted as a fourth rounder that he would be a golden defensive tackle, or is this literally the definition of a guy that, you know, in other words, how is a guy like this who has turned out to be, I mean, you know, what you're talking about with him, from a Division II school, is this just late bloomer? Was there something in the past 
And did the Colts envision that it would be this good for him the way it's all come together? Well, I'm glad you asked because I, I, I have done reporting on this in the past and, and gotten to know Grover Stewart a little bit, and but who, by the way, is delightful, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you, he is he, – is, you get the yes, sir, no, sir. Like, yeah, you get that. He is he is the southern, you know, the, the, the t- prototypical uh, South Georgia guy. But anyway, he is – Definitely a late bloomer to some extent, but that's because he was always a project, to be honest. And I think with those guys, it can go either way. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. To Grover Stewart's credit, he put in the work to ensure that it worked out. And if you look at Grover Stewart today versus the guy who was drafted, if you look at him physically, he's a different guy. Now, he's still huge and can block out the sun, but but he is not the same guy. He's revamped his diet mm-hmm. and really done a lot of work there. Uh, I think he said he dropped like something like 25 pounds or something. Well, that's a lot, even for a big guy. And he worried that maybe he'd lose some of his power. And, and I, don't think that ten, I don't think that turned out to be true. What, what did turn out to be true, though, is that he discovered just another level of quickness and speed off the line, and that is really what these – these offensive linemen are struggling to cope with right now. So I, I think the I think the ability was always there, uh, but I, I don't know that he always had the same tenacity, and he certainly didn't have uh, the 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 physical part of it. He had to develop that, and so now you've got a really strong guy who has has reworked his body and now has just a, has limitless confidence because. He's out there, and he's done it, and he's proven it. And, I mean, you, he's just – good luck to those interior linemen right now because he is just – he's putting up highlight moves on these guys right now. And I think it was a good point you brought up, Stephen. You know, he signed that extension in 2020 and has ascended as a player since then. You don't I love often that. see that. And the other thing to note is I think he plays a position where guys hit their prime kind of late 20s. I think interior defensive linemen, it, it is kind of at this age that Grover's starting to enter – where he hits his prime. And I noticed, you know, in camp, Gus Bradley, someone asked him, you know, has anybody surprised you? And he mentioned Grover. You know, and I think when you think about defensive tackles, you think of space eaters. You don't think of super productive in the backfield making, you know, tackles for loss. And, you know, usually guys behind them are cleaning those things up, but Grover's doing that. Uh, last thing I want to get to before we let you go, Stephen, um, I think a big credit to Gus Bradley for what he did in the secondary on Sunday. You know, Nick Cross is a guy that they handed the starting strong safety job to, and I think they looked at it after a couple weeks and said, all right, with Kansas City, we can't have kind of a boomer bust guy playing safety for us. We need a little bit more of a reliable guy maybe, a little bit more of a veteran presence. Rodney McLeod inserted into the starting lineup. They trust Rodney Thomas, a rookie out of Yale. I mean, they made several secondary changes against Patrick Mahomes, and by all accounts, they all paid off. Yeah, and I would add to that something that that a couple guys talked about, including Stephon Gilmore, which is that they tightened up the coverage, and and I think you saw the results of that. I mean, they they made the windows tighter. They got hands on footballs the other day, and that's not something we've been seeing. So I I think it's a great sign. One of the questions about Gus Bradley and his scheme, just generally, has been has he kept up with the times? You know, this is not. He doesn't have the Legion of Boom, and we're not in 2013 anymore, right? The, the times have changed in the NFL. That, that's almost 10 years ago now, right? So, so he 
the question was always, you know, would he be adaptable? And I think this is a great example of him doing just that. And it's great to see because I always wondered, it's funny, with Nick Cross, as much as I, I understand the excitement and I, I believe in his upside, I really do. I, I know what they see in him. I will say I was a little surprised that from day one they penciled him as, in as a starter and they were just ready to roll with that. And you just almost never see that with rookies, particularly not a third-round pick. Maybe a, a first-round pick you do see that, but a third-rounder, I was always surprised that he was this unquestioned starter, not because of ability, but just because is he ready? And particularly, as you said, against a guy like Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, who is just, you know, the master of disguise and fooling you. I, I think that was a great decision by the Colts to, to maybe ease up on that and, and maybe go another direction. You know, with the Rodney Thomas decision, you know, there, I just think that Nick Cross is a better fit at strong safety. And so they didn't want to, I think, shoehorn him in at free safety uh, when that's not the position he's worked at either for the most part in practice. So uh, it all makes sense in retrospect, and uh, I respect their adaptability. Good stuff. Steven, now that we've gotten everybody versed up on the D.B. Cooper documentaries, uh, are you watching the Dahmer thing on Netflix? You know, my wife started watching it and tried, was trying to get me to watch it, and I don't know, I was on the fence, so – I guess I got to do it on my own because she left me behind. So, Gosh, are you um, worried at all that she's the one that suggested that? <laughs> not to know, not man. to interfere with your relationship. I, but. I had mixed feelings about it. I'm not going to lie. I was like, you know, <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, you go to bed anytime soon, or you can watch this thing all night. You know, like, <laughs> you're a little too into it. I, I was a little concerned, man. I don't know. Stevens asleep with his eyes open tonight. <laughs> <laughs> eyes wide shut at the horror house. You know. <laughs> It's pretty good, man. I will tell you this. It's pretty good. You know, we're only going to have to cave and check it out because, yeah, she's invariably going to talk me to death about it. So I'm going to have to know what she's talking about. Right. Well, death being a keyword there. Uh, We're only on episode three. So if you want to come by and get caught up to speed, Stephen, you're more than welcome. We'll we'll make extra pork chops for you. (laughs) Okay, appreciate it. It is 26 minutes before the hour of nine o'clock. This is Kevin and Cora, 93.5, 107.5, the fan. Day two of the Pacers' season, somewhat speaking, from a practice standpoint. Yesterday was practice number one. Somewhat of an abbreviated practice. I think some of the roster was surprised by uh, the the quick nature of practice yesterday, although I'm sure they weren't complaining about it. Joining us now on the Payless Liquors guest line to talk about the Pacers and more is Tony East who joins us periodically to talk about the blow and gold. Tony, how are you? Doing well. Uh, it, was, it was interesting that it was shorter, that they you know, moved out to do film after their practice, but such is life of a new era of Pacers basketball. Tony, I wanted to start with a comment Rick Carlisle made on Media Day, and part of me is like, oh, that's coach speak. But then I thought to like writing out playing time and lineups and bench unit and all of it, I'm like, you know what, he might be on to something here. Um Carlisle used the phrase 10-man rotation at a minimum. Do you believe that? I do, mostly because of what you said. When you write down all the guys that they almost have to play for some reason or another, whether it's a young player they're trying to develop or someone that they've promised a starting spot at a certain position or someone new they got that they need to explore their talents, they almost have to play at least 10. And even 10 leaves out someone like Terry Taylor or O'Shea Brissett, depending on who they decide to play or something like that. So that's why I 
10 at a minimum is actually true in the case of this younger team that will be experimenting a lot this year with various lineups, something Rick Carlisle likes to do in general. They'll be trying to figure out who fits with who. They'll be trying to maximize Benedict Matherin and Tyrese Halbert and a bunch of other guys in the mix. So I totally believe that given the priorities they're going to have with this new team, they will try to play 10 guys every game, which sometimes might even, he even said this, which surprised me. Sometimes that might even keep Tyrese Halbert's minutes down a little lower than you'd expect. But if that is what it takes to get the guys out there that they want every game, they're going to do it. And obviously you're going to have injuries, but just to kind of play this out here, Carlisle mentioned yesterday the second unit uh, was dominant, and that was T.J. McConnell, Benedict Matherin, Aaron Neesmith, Terry Taylor, and Isaiah Jackson. Their starters, Miles Turner, Jalen Smith, Chris Duarte, Buddy Heald, Tyrese Halliburton. Tony, with those ten names, we haven't mentioned Andrew Nemhard, Daniel Tice, Gogo Batadze, and O'Shea Brissett. Yeah, that's uh, the 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 third unit they even had running was impressive. Like James Johnson was running with that crew yesterday too. Like he was in the rotation for a team that made the playoffs last year, and you know he shouldn't play for the Pacers given that they're leaning in on youth and a long term project. But just the nature of their team and the guys they have, like someone decent to or at least young and interesting is probably not going to play in some games. And I think it might depend game by game. You know, last year, if you'll remember, O'Shea Brissett didn't start in the rotation either. They went with Torrey Craig and Justin Holiday, and it took a few games to really switch that around and have O'Shea become an everyday player. So I think there could be some tweaking and variation with those groups in the rotation as the season goes on, as their record progresses, as maybe trades or injuries pop up because kind of how Carlisle rolls and sort of what's going to be necessary for a team with so many guys kind of worthy of sort of exploring their potential and playing. Uh, Tony, really dumb question here. I was at the the tail end of practice yesterday during the media availability. I did not see Daniel Tice. Is he here yet? Do you know? I, I thought maybe he was participating in something else um, that delayed him getting here by a bit. Am I off? He he got here recently. He was doing his um, medical testing, and he's sick. So it's not COVID. They confirmed he had to get more negative tests before he could return to practice. So he might start on Wednesday if that testing was negative yesterday and this morning and if, if not then maybe we'll see him in a future day but he is in indy uh he's just not practicing yet gotcha uh and nimhart is a guy from what i can tell tony um and the rookie from gonzaga for those that don't correct know. who was the second round draft pick and starts out as the number three point guard but boy i'll tell you what i mean very early but it seems as though the pacers brass are really excited about the possibility of kind of getting a steal there and a guy that they think might get minutes in some rotation spots this year. Do you get that same impression? Yeah, they were talking about, you know, that, that, that that's a tough one. The first pick of the second round, you got to wait out a lot of picks to get the guy. And if you want someone like Andrew Nembard, they had to, to wait it out. And he is an interesting fit on this team. He fits kind of the MO that it looks like Carlisle is chasing with their point guards, which is guys who are good passers and good at moving the ball to someone else in the right way in traffic. He showed that in summer league, which it's summer league, but showing off of a skill that people think you're going to be good at is still important. And it'll be fascinating to see if they can get him minutes this year, because it's an interesting kind of gap in perception. He was the first pick of the second round. So you call him the second round pick, but if you get picked one pick earlier, right? One slot earlier, you're a first round pick. And on a developing team, you always talked about, Oh, you got to get your first round six minutes, right? So the perception of one pick kind of changes how much people feel like he should and needs to play. But, yeah, being the 31st pick is still just right outside that first-round range, and they clearly like the way he can pass and, and run the second unit. I'll be interested to see if they can get him on the floor this year because the other part of media day that was interesting is, and Kevin Pritchard talked about this in his press conference last week, T.J. McConnell fits the way they're trying to play. 
pretty well, and he's kind of an important vet to this team as sort of taking on a leadership role. You know, he, he'll presumably play every game, so it's going to be hard to find Andrew Nembard minutes at point guard where he can really have the ball and, and push the base. But it seems like, you know, that they like him and would like to get him out there somehow. So they'll have to get creative in that way, too. They have a lot of rotation decisions that will be tough this year. Tony, I, we talked a lot about Miles Turner and his future here earlier in the show. I, I know that's a subject we've probably talked annually about, so I, let's not focus on it here. Let's concentrate more on his fit with Tyrese Halliburton. We, we didn't see them on the floor last year. We didn't see Turner on the floor with you know Buddy Heald either. Um, now is a solo big, now playing with a pass-first point guard. What do you think can be tapped into with a healthy Turner? Yeah, I think that the, the pass-first part is key there because – it's weird to go back so far for this, but two of Turner's better seasons statistically and shooting the ball were the first two seasons of the Victor Oladipo era, 2017-18 and 18-19. And Darren Collison was the point guard then. I don't think Darren Collison was a brilliant setup pass or anything like that, but he was, in Turner's time with the Pacers, the best point guard the Pacers have had at getting him the ball in the pick and pop. And that gave him you know, the best chances to shoot from deep and to, to get shots from the spots that he likes. And so... Uh, I think that that is where Tyrese Halliburton's abilities as a passer and a setup man and his his really good skill reading the game will really shine. If he can get Turner the ball, similar to how Darren Collison did, just dumping it backwards on pick and pops and using him well in the pick and roll, it seems like they're going to have Turner set some more screens this year. You know, Carlisle last year even was talking about using Turner as a lob threat, which never materialized. But, you know, I think that they, they should, in theory, fit pretty well together in that way, just as a guy who can either roll or pop, and, and Tyrese is very good at reading the game depending on which one he does. So it seems like Turner should get the ball in his spot at, at the right time with a good pass, but they'll have to explore what that fit actually looks like. You know, Turner's definitely better at popping than rolling, but you can't do the same thing over and over again and expect success. So I think they, they on paper, fit well together. Floor spacers are always valuable. It seems like Turner will be a little more involved this year, especially after his comments last December. But the question is, you know, he's, he's playing with three starters who he's never played with before. How can he find his spots, and can those guys set him up for success? Tony East is our guest on the Payless Sugars guest line. You can read his work about the Pacers at Forbes and then Locked On Sports. Tony, not named Tyrese Halliburton, I want you to tell me the player on this Pacers roster that would have the most market value universally across the board in the rest of the NBA. Uh, it's got to be Benedict Matherin, right? Just because he was just... Well, yeah, I guess... <laughs> How I, I dare you forget about him, Jake? That's right. Well, okay, let's say let's say of players that have played games for the Pacers before. I probably should have sure. prefaced that. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I think Chris Duarte would have some value around the league as an all-rookie guy last year. And he's tricky to kind of pin down from a value perspective because he was good last year. Obviously, he projects to be a guy who can really shoot it with his skill set. He's still adding to his game. But he's hard to 25, right? So... How do, you, how do teams marry that up in their head? How do they kind of decide what's more important, the amount of time he's been in the NBA or his skill set will be interesting going forward. But he's a good fit with Halliburton as a shooter and a guy who can make a, make a shot off of a few dribble moves. That seems like the perfect kind of secondary creator type that you would want. And it sounds like, you know, based off what we heard in, in the, the lineups in yesterday's practice, he was in the starting group in day one. We'll see what how fluid those lineups are, as Carlisle does like to tinker a little bit. Yeah, you know, it seems like he would be the most valuable guy given his his age and expertise and what he's good at. But there's a you know, Buddy Heald obviously has been in trade chatter all summer. If he can be the guy he was for the Pacers last year, more so than the guy he was for the Kings, it seems like that value will 
continue to go up if he can actually pass and rebound in a way that nobody really thought he could. So it seems like those two guys will lead the pack. Isaiah Jackson, obviously very interesting, but uh, at this stage, you know, a guy who just made All-Rookie last year and a veteran who can really shoot it would be the leaders in the clubhouse. You know, I get the feeling, Tony, Duarte to me is interesting because I, I look at Chris Duarte and I think to myself, he's a Doug Christie type player. He's a, you know, one of those like, kind of versatile sixth men type guys. If Chris Duarte is is your fifth or sixth guy, you're a really good mid-50s win team. If Chris Duarte is one of your – is your second or third option, you're 25 and 57. Do you agree with that? That makes some sense to me. And I, I think the th- thing about Duarte that's interesting is I've kind of watched him through the years is – he projects more to be an elite shooter and not as good off the dribble guy to me than the other way around, which sort of break, you know, Doug, Doug Christie was still a good shooter, but sort of breaks the Christie mold to an extent to me. But I still think even that kind of player is valuable as a six man to come in and sort of change the way a defense has to guard a team. So, yeah, I agree with you on that to an extent. I think that if he can become a really good defender, that would sort of change his perspectives and outlook. That would make him a guy that you could use in your starting box to shut down other wings. But in general, you know, if he adds to his game in a way where he can beat someone off the dribble and get to the rim or something like that, it would make a lot of sense that he would be that six-man type that really ignites his second unit more so than, you know, a guy who's trying to, to break defenses with the starters. I need to YouTube that Doug Christie-Kobe Bryant fight. That was that was <laughs> pretty entertaining, if I remember correctly. Uh, Tony, last one from me. Um, the Pacers are done with Miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis as a pairing. Uh, Jalen Smith is a guy that I think there are some questions on can he be like a true four in the modern NBA. I know talking to Ch- in talking to Chad Buchanan last week, the Pacers love what Jalen Smith has done this offseason. Um, how do you kind of compare and contrast Turner and Sabonis on the floor together to now Turner and Jalen Smith? Yeah, everybody was using Turbonis last year. We'll have to come up with new phrasing for Turner and Smith, but it's not as easy to to merge those names together. You know, the, the offensive fit is fascinating because, you know, I, I think that they can both shoot it a little bit better than Sabonis could, at least if Smith can keep up the numbers he had from deep that last year with the Pacers. And it sounds like they're high on the growth he's made this summer. Uh, and he's a little more mobile than Sabonis. Not, and not that Sabonis didn't work on that during his time with the Pacers. But in general, I think that they can do a little more in terms of being on the perimeter and moving around more than they could, you know, where Sabonis would, you know, always start on the right side and try to do his, his handoffs and his sets from that direction. And I think they can be a little more versatile and mobile with their current group. But obviously neither of them have the post skills Sabonis had, so it'll be harder to play inside out. And on defense, we're already back to hearing what we heard before, where the question for Jalen Smith will be, can he be more mobile and defend out on the perimeter. He was talking about that at media day. Rick Carlisle mentioned it on media day. And if he can, it's going to be a clunky fit at times, right? Fours are just going to get a feast on this Pacers team. They can't put Turner on them because then he's not around the basket. So uh, I think they can fit well because they're both mobile-ish big men. But the defensive fit, like it was with the old two-center pairing, might be awkward at times. And that's sort of the the pitfalls of, of a younger team that you have guys who you need to play playing a little out of position. At T East NBA on Twitter and Tony with the preseason opening up uh, next Wednesday and the regular season opening up two more Wednesdays from that. Uh, I want to give an opportunity for you to plug kind of where your content is at. I think it's outstanding content. I always enjoy our conversations, but for fans that maybe have not come across your content, where can we find a little bit of everything? All over the place. Yeah. If you 
for Pacers content, daily podcast called Locked On Pacers, uh, broken down the first practice for today, stuff from media day around the league, like Malcolm Brogdon saying the Pacers let him choose his destination in a trade, which is fascinating. Uh, writing for Forbes and the West Side Community News and for the Fever Front uh, at the next hoop. So lots of ways to uh, dive in and learn more about pro basketball here in Indiana. Tony, always love our conversations. Looking forward to more of them coming up here in the fall and winter. Wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys. Colin Hay, who is the lead singer of Minute Work, native, not native of, he moved to Melbourne from Scotland when he was a boy, but grew up in Melbourne, Australia. And those of you who listen to this program know that over the last few days I've been touring around my Australian friends who have become uh, almost like family to me, Michael, Marcus, and Daniela, who are natives of Melbourne. I met them at a Pacer game several years ago. Michael and Marcus are diehard, diehard, diehard Pacer fans. Um, They came back to the U.S., actually back to North America. They're going to a wedding in Toronto later in the week. So they came through Indianapolis first because – they have a connection to the city based on the Pacers. So last night we went to my mom and dad's house to have some orange fluff cake from Taylor Bakery. And Daniela was nice enough to bring me uh, snacks from Australia. These are, I don't know how you would, what is a, a, what is a snack or candy that is a U.S. custom that like everyone loves? Reese's. Yeah. Reese's. Okay. In the cups. So these are similar, I guess you'd say. Uh, you guys That's did not praise. like... I brought you Vegemite, and you did not like Vegemite, correct? I thought it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, it had a... My palate they, rejected it. They did bring me Vegemite, too. Do you guys want some? And, and let me be clear, Jake. In no way, shape, or form do I want this to sound offensive to your friends. I think it's awesome that they're here. Frankly, I think it's really cool. It's a little side note. I think it's really cool, like... There's two or three Pacers broadcasts a year where I'm like, JJ's interviewing a fan from Taiwan or totally, a fan yeah, yeah. from you know South crazy, Africa. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. These diehard Pacers fans exist all over the world. So these are Tim Tams. Anybody who has been to Australia or knows of their food knows about Tim Tams. Now, they taste kind of, well, I don't know how else to describe it. They are listed in Australia as chocolate biscuits. But what you're supposed to do is bite off each end and then use them in milk and use them like a straw, kind of like the fella did with the hot dog at the Yankee game with beer. Now we don't. I wish I forgot that. We don't have milk here, so you're not going to be able to do that. But here you go. Mark, there's your Tim Tam. Kevin, there's your Tim Tam. Look at this. Uh, See what you think. These are – there's a – there's a Nabisco cookie that they taste kind of save this and hand it out on Halloween, or should I be saving No, no, you don't want to do that. Okay. Scotty, I can bring you one tomorrow if you'd like. I I brought a whole bag of them. I'm uh, we'll, we'll see what you showing think Showing the here. YouTube camera audience okay. just the look of it. So you're supposed to bite into the end of it and use it as a straw? Well, if you had milk here, you... you because it's kind of hollow in the middle. Okay. That's what you're supposed to do is bite each in, and then it becomes a straw, and you, you take the milk through it. But obviously, you don't have the milk here. <laughs> I'll <laughs> Kevin, tell you what. Kevin has had his first bite. I'll tell you what, Of the Tim Tam. I don't know if I agree with you on a lot of things, but I'm nodding my head at this one. <laughs> These are solid. Mark, your thoughts? Yep. Yep. 10 out of 10. Mm. How, would, how would you describe the Tim Tam? A little wafer-like on the inside. Uh-huh. Um... The chocolate is tremendous. 10 out of 10. Mark's just handing out grades. Uh, I'd give it a solid 9.6. If a Reese's is 9.8, I'm putting a 9.6 on it. Well, 10 out of 10, I'm, I'm using the metric system. <laughs> no. Excuse me. 
<laughs> you, you and Jake just so fluent in your math these days. So you approve, Mark? Yeah. Now, yeah. anywhere in the States or no? I think you can now, but for a long time, you could not buy them at all in the States, Tim Tams. I think you, I mean, these days between Amazon and everything else, you can buy anything anywhere, right? Um, I don't know that they're the pure, like, Australian, you know, a lot of those places, they use, like, a pure cane sugar, you know, whatever it might be. So I don't know if it's 100%. These are obviously authentically Australian because they, Daniela brought them straight over. Daniela, thank you. Yes, so there thank you go. very much. Jake, thank you. That mm-hmm. was terrific. <laughs> They're pretty good, aren't they? Can I have they? that for breakfast every day? <laughs> they are pretty good, man. Now, I, here, I did bring you. I, did, I didn't want you to feel. Wait, you there's can, more? Well, yeah. You, oh, yeah. You can take these home to the kids. Oh, Scotty, would you like a, uh, I have gifts Jake, here. I don't know if Max is going to be consuming Vegemite anytime soon. Huh? Is that what you're bringing out? No, of course not. Give me more credit than that. Um, what do you have uh, on schedule for the rest of the day, Kev? Head up to Colts practice after this. First practice of the week. Wednesday's kind of my busy day. Back here to record a podcast a little bit later. Fair enough. You got anything? I uh, got uh, tutoring tomorrow. I am driving the Australians to Chicago today. We are going to see Michael Jackson's home. Childhood home. They want to see that on the no, way. No. There you go. Oh. What do we got here? <laughs> Vegemite. <laughs> I mean, just look at the color of it on the back. You know what it kind of looks like is black tar heroin. I mean, just horrific. <laughs> um, getting the veins ready. I, I don't. I do not want that. What, excuse me. Now, what does this taste with? Like a Tim Tam? Does the Tim Tam should excellent. I ruin my experience? excellent question? Go ahead and try. I'll I'll be the show monkey. Sure. <laughs> is there a uh, I'll be the show monkey? Says Mark has the Vegemite. And is going- oh God, I'm getting PTSD just smelling this thing. <laughs> Mark, Mark is going to try Don't the Vegemite. It. It's wonderful. Let's it's try. a popular delicacy. A Vegemite sandwich. Okay. Let's so this is again that. a yeast extract spread. I believe is what they call it. Mark is putting oh, Vegemite on the tin. <laughs> that was a horrible mistake. Mark, a horrible mistake. <laughs> I'd like to say that I told you so. <laughs> Mark just guzzles water. Did you put the Vegemite on the Tim Tam? Yeah, the Tim Tam lost in that. that <laughs> now, speaking of overseas, we've got the first London game this weekend. Yes. Saints uh, and who, Scotty? <laughs> Doesn't stop. Mark just turned around towards the trash can. <laughs> um, I don't want to be rude with your gifts, but that's going straight in the garbage. 